Roman. How's it going, man? Good, Chris. How are you? It's Friday, man. It's a nice day outside, sun shining. A little bit colder than I want it to be, but uh, it's a, it's a beautiful day today, man. Yeah, it's um, it's not blue skies here like it normally is every Friday when when you and I talk. Um, it's a little overcast, but uh, we're coming up almost at the end of uh, a full quarter into the calendar year. It's crazy to think about it, man. Two more weeks left, uh, and just a mad sprint, man, into Q1 of of a whole new year, man. It's it's crazy. And um, what I've what I found really interesting is like. Uh, I don't know. I keep thinking about 2020, um, just this camel, right? Like this two humped camel of a year. Uh, and, and now this year is just growing as well, right? Like everything's kind of feeling like things are getting slightly back to normal. Um, we're starting to see some of the recovery that we've been talking about. I know the, the stock market has, is ignored us for about 12 months, but, um, you know, just in, in normal reality of where the rest of us live, right? Things starting to feel a bit normal. How's that been for uh, most of the FPNA people you talk to on a daily basis? Yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's a cr- across the board, man. I think in certain regions, man, people, um, the biggest thing is like the whole remote working home thing. I think that's going to continue for the rest of the year. Uh, I had some colleagues that I was talking to. I did some sessions on the World Finance Forum this uh, uh, this week. And I got to connect with some people in South Africa and the UK and Asia. And, you know, for them, it's it's pretty much business as usual as it was in 2020, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the only wild card for a lot of different places is, are they working at the office? Do they have the ability to work at the office? But pretty much everything else from 2020 and the things that they've been doing and experiences that they shared is pretty much still carrying over. So uh you know I, I think at least that's a good thing right is getting some consistency to what they were having and what they were experiencing last year carrying forward into this year yeah and um and so as people are carrying stuff forward into this year one of the topics that has been huge on uh on a lot of people's minds has been how are we going to change our strategy and uh and a lot of organizations have um you know they've certainly changed their uh their office strategy for sure, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. But let's talk more about corporate strategy today. Uh, that's what we wanted to this session to be about was, um, you know, how FP&A can participate in, in the strategy of an organization. And so I guess what I'd love to get from you um, just to kickstart us is, um, you know, how, how heavily involved do you get in the strategy and how do you then see the, the, the partnership and advisory part of your, your version of FPNA? How do you see that then going to execute with the other corners of the business? Yeah, I think, you know, the strategy, right? I think one thing that is, has been pretty consistent amongst, you know, myself and other colleagues that I've reached out to around strategy has just been around just the ebb and flows. You mentioned the camel that's going with it, right? Like, I think right now people are starting to understand, like, it it came in waves. So, like, during the peak of the pandemic, like, the strategy was always being fine-tuned on, like, a daily basis, right? There was what you knew yesterday was changing once you knew it tomorrow and the next week before. uh, Just assumptions, variables, and everything. The strategy was so fluid. It was like water. 
right? Now, what I think we're getting to with, uh, you know, particularly in the U.S. and particularly in the America's market, which I support, is we're trying to understand, okay, now we have a little bit more lead time in terms of how we're looking at the strategy and how we're measuring, how we're tracking and how we're evaluating, right? Now, our strategy is a little different because we're doing a lot of this stuff while working through a, 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 a migration and in a, in, in a, an acquisition. Um, but I would, I would say FP&A leaders now are really starting to see, okay, before the pandemic, we had that 60, 90, 120 day viewpoint and strategy that we were looking at to execute on the business. I don't think we'll get down to where, you know, you could do a 120 day forecast and have uh, reliance on it. It's now getting to at least a month, 45 days, right? So now you're looking to see, okay, strategies that we're implementing now, how do we reevaluate those in a month? How do we reevaluate those in a month and a half? So I think it's getting a little bit more where we're getting a little bit more ability to be able to tighten that window in terms of what we're, uh, the strategy is. Now, in terms of the partnership, that stays the same, right? But again, I think that partnership touch point has changed a lot, right? During the pandemic and with our commercial teams, with our client success teams, with uh, you know all the teams that we support, it was very like you were constantly pulsing. It was like a pulse all the time. You're pulsing information, you're cascading things. Now, you know, people have pretty much fit into their, you know, they got their rhythm, they got their cadence. So really it's like, in, it's like scheduled or more frequent touch in points to be able to do it, right? Like I'm not talking with our commercial leaders or our, our client success teams or our people teams like every week or every day that I was before. So I think that has been kind of the shift that I, I've seen, but still we haven't got to the point where we were pre-pandemic where it was like 30, 60, 90 days you were doing that stuff. So um, that's where I think the strategy uh, involvement that FPNA has and also on the partnership side, uh, at least what I'm seeing currently right now. Yeah, the um, the kind of 30, 60, 90 stuff to me is like managing the uh, the forecast against the strategy, right? It's It's... You know, how are we executing? How's the realistic expectation um, occurring in the market based on what we kind of modeled out our assumptions to be? And, uh, and for those that uh, didn't see my wonderful LinkedIn post the other day, I basically said anything you model out is wrong. Uh, it's just how right. wrong is it, right? Um, I, I've never met a, a perfect model that, you know, everyone is like, wow, we went exactly as expected. Um, it just doesn't happen. But the um, the real learning is actually building the assumptions, testing the assumptions, you know, collaborating with, with various teams, whether that, if that's a go-to-market uh, execution strategy, it's working with marketing, working with sales and, and understanding, hey, how is this going to work? Well, guess what? The marketing tactics that we thought would work, they didn't work. And so now we need to pivot and, and try and, you know, in the 30 day period of that experiment, we're going to change something. That to me is like one way of FPNA managing um, to the strategy. The other way is managing to the budget, right? And, and, you know, managing, okay, well, the strategy stays, the strategy may change, but the budget therefore needs to change because now we've got a new strategy. And so that's where I see, I see a lot of the, the FPNA partnership becoming really important because FPNA is forward looking and the budget is uh, backwards looking in some cases, right? Depending right. on the forecast. Uh, 
And, and that's where um, the partnership is really important for folks like you with folks like me to say, hey, Rowan, like, I understand that you have shifted your strategy, but we don't have the budget to support that because when we built the budget, it was looking like this. So how are you going to reach, you know, repivot and, and do all those types of things? So, Chris, when you guys are, you know, and, and talk about other experiences, but when you're going through a strategic shift, right, opening up a new market, you know, the Americas um, and or opening up a new um, a new sector inside of that or a new vertical or going after a new industry. What's the typical approach that you would advise people to take from an FP&A perspective in working with the organization to build the strategy around that and then, you know, follow that experimentation tracking along the way? Yeah, I think those are always fun initiatives to be a part of with the business, right? And I've had the opportunity in my career at a lot of different companies to, to do those sorts of things, whether it was, you know, expanding a new vertical or sharpening your focus or opening America's office and building things from scratch. But to me, I think it's, you know, in terms of like the commercial side, right? One of the organizations I was a part of, we really sharpened our focus, right? We were a CRM um, we were a SaaS-based company that provided a CRM to not-for-profits, chambers of commerce, and associations. And we said, you know what, we're all in this comp this chamber of commerce space, but the association has higher MRR sizes. There's, uh, you know, there's double the amount of customers out there. So the total addressable market is double. All these opportunities were out there, but uh, we were like, we need to sharpen the focus on like, what is what is the market? What do we need to go after? Where do our product complement? And for us, it was really connecting the entire business, right? Mm -hmm. And my role in that in that process was not just only providing the forecasts and the total addressable markets and their ideal customer profile and you know here's the market data we have. Not only just that, but also like serve as a project manager to that initiative, which I think is pretty cool. A lot of a lot of us are in FP&A and we're already project managers, right? Like if you're managing a budget, that's a project. If you're managing a forecast, that's a project. If you're managing all the, you know, we, we were literally project managers, mm -hmm. but that was super cool because I got to work with, you know, our product development teams and I'm saying, okay, like how does our product roadmap fit to our tier one, tier two and tier three verticals, which we identified, right? We, we came clear and concise to say, Hey, a tier one vertical has this MRR size, this amount of customers, uh, this amount of users on the platform, and they'll pay like this amount of price. And this is the total addressable market we had. So we really get that piece of it down. But that was just only kind of like the, the first step, because then we said, OK, how does our product role fit to identifying our tier one, tier two and tier three verticals? And then we got to marketing and said, OK, how does our marketing strategy and what we have in place fit to our tier one, tier two, and tier three verticals. So it really helped anchor the business, all the areas around the business. Even, even my team, it's like, okay, how do we uh, uh, support different pricing initiatives for tier one, tier two, tier three? So that strategic planning aspect and really coming out of that conversation, having the business aligned on, here's, here's what the market is, here's what we consider the market to be, Here's how we align our functional areas to go target these different markets, right? And then not only that, here's the timing of which we want to do all these different things. So for us, it's really it's really being a part of not just 
the quantitative aspect of that strategic planning initiative. It was also being a part of the long-term and short-term planning around the functional areas around it. And what I really, the, the major thing I really got out of that and that I enjoyed was it was connecting the dots to people that are not, you know, necessarily finance people, right? Like sitting down with a implementation consultant and understanding why we need to have a 90-day implementation timeline for a tier one vertical. And we need to have this net promoter score come outside of that, uh, uh, you know, set these initiatives around it. And that that connected them to say, okay, if we deliver a net, if we deliver a 90-day implementation and have a positive net promoter score, right? The likelihood of us getting this amount of money in, the likelihood of us having uh, marketing getting better customer testimonials, right? Which brings in more referral business, which we close at 65%. It was it was that opportunity, right? And I really love that because it was connecting every individual at the organization to not only how their role impacted that strategy, but also how they're able to drive their thing actually in their functional day, right? And the last thing I'll talk about that we did on that that was like monumental is we aligned people's compensations around that. So now people know like, oh man, my comp, my variable comp for those people that have variable compensation my variable comp is tied to the success of what we're doing. So it was an all-in ball game. And, you know, we were involved in that as well. Like, we were involved in the comp planning. And some teams never had variable compensation. And now they're getting variable comps. So I think, like, that is really the value add that you get out of that. It's not just the finance. It's not just the three, five, you know, seven-year forecasting that you do around the strategy. It's actually connecting the dots to people and connecting the dots in the organization. I just want everyone to, that's listening to just stop for a minute and uh, and think about what Chris just talked through, right? Like Chris has an intimate understanding of how the business side works, right? So as an FP&A partner, he understands that implementation timeframes are important to the success of the customer. He's looking at NPS scores. He's using all these variables outside of a traditional mathematical business model, right? And and that's what we're talking about when we talk about being a business partner. You've got to know the ins and outs of that business just as well as the business team do. And actually even better because then you've got to take that and take that back into a mathematical model to allow you to show and be the representative of the business to the rest of the finance organization and show how things are are playing out and and be able to then advise and guide um, your business partner. Like if that was in marketing, that's me, right? to be able to guide me to say, Rowan, did you know where we're at with this metric? You, you should go and do something about it. Are you running advocacy campaigns? How are you incentivizing this? You know, what's going on? And what, what I found really, um, really powerful there, Chris, was just your deep understanding of knowing customer success metrics as they pertain to your part of the job, right? And, and I think that's, like it, it, you, you just speak so naturally about it, but I think that's the big opportunity for for you know up and coming FP&A professionals is to embed yourself in the business and right. and be curious, really curious, because the more that you're curious about how the business works, the more that you can go and ask questions of the data, 
the more that you're going to, you know, uh, A, be a trusted partner, like, you know, I would want to bring Chris to my offsite because he's going to help me with something, right? Like there's going to be value add there. Uh, whereas, you know, a traditional scorekeeper, right. it's like you're just managing me to the budget. I, I don't care about you, right? Like, yeah, sure. Let, uh, can you help me transfer money from one department to the other? That you're not going to be that business partner. So, so just I want everyone to stop for a minute and just think about the level of detail Chris knew about the business there. I think that's so key because if you're trying to become that next next gen FPNA leader, that's how you do it. You you become inside the business. Definitely, definitely, and that's just one aspect of it, right? Like that was just our client success organization, right? We were doing this, and the thing about it is for the listeners, Rowan, I think I want to make sure. We did this with a team of three people, right? This wasn't like, you know, I, I think so many people like they get, you know, people message me and they get like, Chris, you must have like a team of 80 people. No, nah, I, I, I've never, the, the largest accounting finance FBNA team I've ever been a part of has been eight people. So it's not like we had an army of people doing this, but we were intentional about how we wanted to go. So we did the same thing with our marketing group. We did the same thing with sales. We did the same thing with our customer support. We did the same things with our CSMs. Like we we were part of and 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 what I what I made to our CFO to make sure we were successful in this is we need to be like the the advocate. We need to be the bridge between the business and the strategy, right? Like we need to be that in-between layer that connects a person coming in doing their job to how that drives the major performance that we need in the business. FP&A needs to be that layer in between. Because if you connect down to the business and get down to the details, understand, listen, evaluate, you are able now to connect the dots to the bigger picture, right? And now you have someone else as equally as invested in what they do and how that's driving performance, right? So for me, uh, the biggest takeaway I loved out of that was I was creating like, and I'm in another time we talked about it, the financial IQ. I think that's what you mentioned about it. Mm-hmm. That's what we were creating. And I think that's one of the major outcomes of any strategic planning initiative you should have. Not just the plans, not just the forecast, not just the assumptions, but actually building uh, knowledge inside the business. Yeah, it, it's it's building that. So that financial IQ, you know, is something that you can share with the rest of the business and, and advise them and guide them. Um, but it's also getting really, really detailed and specific about the business IQ too. You can't have a financial IQ if you don't have the business IQ. And, right. and so, you know, as you think about, you want to be in those strategy sessions. Like if you're talking about, you know, new lines of revenue and maybe you're trying to take, uh, how do we get uh, existing customers that we have to buy more product from us? You want to be in the room there because then you, if you're not in the room, uh, two things are, are apparent then. Like for some reason, the people in the room either don't trust you or they don't see you as being helpful to the output of that conversation. And so if you get that invitation into the room, just make sure you're, you're listening, you're asking curious questions, you know, you're asking, we talked about this on a, on a previous episode, help me understand how that would work, right? right. Um, you know, try and get the, the thinking and the critical understanding and be building models as you go along, adding value, trying to help people say, oh, well, this is how we get to that, you know, magical number or where we grow. 
and then apply the guardrails after. I think that's the other thing that people, um, you know, I was having a conversation with, with Grant, our, our CEO here at Planful the other day, and we're talking about strategy. And he's like, the, the thing that most people get wrong is they, they walk in with the guardrails already on. And so they don't get as much um, clear blue sky, blue ocean thinking out. Rather, we should be thinking, all right, let's, let's just get all of our thinking out and then put the guardrails on afterwards. And that's how we can, you know, really start to, to change the approach of our strategy. Definitely. So Chris, you talked about having a, a small team, right? The largest team of, uh, the, you know, the team that you were working with before was three and the largest team was, was eight. Help me understand, like, how do you structure the team, right? When we think about business partnership um, and the level of expertise that you have in, in the client success organization, is that because that's the only team that you looked after? No, so for, for me... I've never looked at accounting finance FP&A as a traditional lens, right? So when I first came to Amarsis, um, I came to Amarsis a little under five years ago. Uh, our teams, just as context, EMEA was set up, you know, it had your controller, it had your junior controller, it had your, like, your dedicated AP person, your dedicated collections person. Um, that's kind of the, the framework a lot of accounting finance FP&A teams kind of have. They have that kind of structure built up. But for me, I was like, and, 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 and again, it created like inside the accounting finance FP&A teams, it created like single points of failure mm -hmm. and single points of failure that if your billing person left and was out, like none of that knowledge, none of that retention, none of that partnership inside the business was retained because that person was exclusively related to that. Right. And when I first came in, like one of the biggest opportunities I had and what what drove me to a Marxist was. There was no playbook. There was nothing that like I was one of one. I was the first accounting finance FPA person like responsible, given a laptop and said, Chris, build this out. Like my, my direct manager was the CFO in Vienna. And I had like a conversation with him before. And it was like, all right, Chris, you got your laptop, good to go. But for me, I've always looked at teams to say, I'd rather my team be versed in, in, in a lot of different things. Right. So I don't want just experts. I want jacks of all trade. The second thing that I did for my team is I didn't structure it based on like responsibility. I didn't structure my team based on tasks that they completed. I structured it on business value that we were bringing to the organization that answered three key, three key business questions. What do we say we're going to do? What do we do? And what are we going to do about it? So I structured my teams that way. And that was the business questions that we had. And, uh, you know, for me, the top of the question is like, what does it mean to be a high potential, a high performance and partnership accounting and finance team in America? Literally, like, that's my first question I have there. The second layer is tactical and strategic operations, right? Tactical operations answers the questions. What do we do? What do we say we're going to do? Right. That's your accounting. That's, you know, what do we say we're going to do? We did eight widgets on a budget of 10. Right. And then the, the strategy side of it is what are we going to do about it? And then under the tactics, I had accounting, monthly and close, invoicing, kind of those areas that you have. I had a leader and, a, and, a, and a, a support person managing that, and I managed all the strategy aspects of it. The strategy was the budgeting, the, the relationship building, the strategic planning, uh, the you know all, all those different things that go into what a strategy-based is, right? 
And then we had all those core areas. And then at the last piece of it for my team, everybody's compensation is aligned towards that structure, right? So for me, that was the vision that I came into my, or like, that's the vision I came into and said, hey, this is, this is how I want to structure my team. So ironically, when it came to hiring people, right, after the year and a half where it's just me by myself and I'm moving all of our accounting operations, all everything that was externally out, I'm bringing that all in-house. I talked with our CFO and he was like, Chris, all right, we got to go hire your, your, you know, we got to go hire this person. We got to go hire uh, a dedicated accounting person. We got to go hire a dedicated collection. Partner. I said, no, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's look at technology first. Like, I don't, I don't, I don't want a person that's in this whole lane dedicated to do this, right? If we can go find a technology that gives us 80, 90% of that, give me the money that you would invest. Give me half the money you invest in a headcount. So now I can invest in the technology and bring that to my team. So that's how we built everything. I remember talking with uh, my manager about it. He was like, Chris, that's a crazy idea. But if you come up with the business case and it makes sense and it's cost justification and it's all those, you know, business things you have to do, that's how we invested. Right. And my team is still my team currently right now is three people. Right. But we are a high performance partnership accounting and finance team across the board. Right. But we focused on those areas of, of, of execution to be masters of, of our universe, but know what lanes we operate in, know what business questions we, we're answering, know what value we're providing to the business, but then also tying it all together to say, here's the value proposition that we bring. So I think a lot of leaders and, and, and people follow that same playbook, right? It's just, look, listen, for all the listeners, and the biggest takeaway you guys get out of this conversation, I'm looking you directly in the face, leaders. Stop hiring people to solve problems. Stop it. Like, don't quit. Quit just throwing people to solve business problems. Like, don't do that. And so many people run that playbook over time because they're like, oh, we got a problem. Hire somebody to solve the problem. Oh, problem goes away. No, you have to think about more efficiency. You have to think about scale. And then also you have to be more strategic in how you align your value proposition inside the business. So that's kind of how I structure my teams. I'm, and I've, I've had a lot of success with that. Yeah, it's it's really important that you think about the types of work that, that folks need to do, right? Or what the problem is, right? When you think about, um, oh, I've got this, you know, AP, right? We, we talked about it, I think, last week, right? That's always going to happen. It's just this routine thing that this code goes to this place. Like, that's such a an opportunity to automate something, right? Um, And that then frees up that person that you then do hire to actually do the high value work and to get into the weeds so that you can actually execute on the strategy. And as we've been saying, elevate the financial IQ of the rest of the team. And that way you can, you know, that, that kind of rising tides lift all boats. Then you're lifting everyone up in the organization to make, you know, better, more responsible fiscal decisions, which means the whole output of the company can improve. And so just as something as simple as just hiring someone to solve an AP problem or a, you know, accounts receivable problem, if you think about it and step back, what type of work is that? Uh, it's pretty routine. Does it require someone to have a super high intellect all day, every day to really strategically think through what they should be doing? Nope. Okay, well, let's automate it as much as possible. 
or cost container. Maybe you get in, you know, a, a consultant in, or you, you know, you outsource it to someone else where they can do it for much cheaper than a real person, right? Just think about the types of work that you're asking people to do or need people to do, and and then shift it. You know, too too often, uh, even in my team today, I've I've got people doing some really low value work. I'm like, man, I've got to figure out a way to get you out of this because you're worth so much more to the rest of the team when you can be, you know, doing the the advising them on process, uh, helping someone with their marketing strategy or or their stuff. It's it's so crucial uh, when we do hire and when we do think about how we structure our teams. Definitely, especially when um, coming back when we've got a intense strategy going on, right? Like. Yeah. If you're in the middle of a strategic pivot or an experimentation or launching a new business, you know, a business within a business, and you've got your people sitting there bogged down by this routine, mundane, everyday task, they can't help you. Nope. Not at all, man. (laughs) And, and, And that's the difficulty, right, is you're juggling. What we always have to struggle with county finance FNA leaders is capacity, right? Like we... The capacity constraint that we have is ongoing, right? Because right now we're in the peak of the pandemic and our functional roles and what we provide and the value that we bring to the organization is in high demand, right? But I don't I don't see CEOs and CFOs saying, hey, we need to go hire like 20, 30 more people. You know what I mean? They're saying, hey, we need to, we need to, we need to always be thinking about capacity and efficiency. And that's where I think the role. And as it relates to growth is always looking at like technology, right? Technology has always been like, uh, you know, uh, an example, Batman's tool belt where he has his like bat <laughs> ring and his like his thing, he shoots out his gun and Batman has all these little gadgets on his little bat, bat belt, right? I look at that as technology. Like if I have AP, I can throw this at it. If I have collections, I can throw this at it. If I, you know, want to have more collaboration, I can throw these things at it. So that's how I leverage technology in terms of driving growth, but it's also the other side, right? Because I've had opportunities and experiences where we look at a situation and it's like, this isn't growth. We need to wind this down. Like we need to find a safe landing for this situation, right? So it goes both ways. You're not changing the value proposition and the approach that you bring to a new market revenue growth opportunity versus like hey we need to be cost conscious we need to really pivot in terms of like markets that we're in we need to pivot in terms of customers we're going after we got to reduce costs like it's the same approach you take to both of them and i think that is like where the value of leveraging technology in a in a growth scenario or you know in a in a kind of hey cost containment uh we need to keep the lights on kind of scenario uh, that's the that's the approach to take. At least that's what I've seen be successful. And I'm not saying it's a one size fit all, but I think that approach has been been very valuable to organizations I've been a part of. Yeah, the the confidence intervals are different when you're managing to a forecast, right? Like how tight you need to be to a forecast is very different on a new emerging experimental business versus a um, you know, a super well-defined production model style business that's, you know, very, very predictable. Um, If you start to see a forecast dipping, then you start to control the costs a little bit in a really mature business. In something that's experimental, you have different levers that you want to and should be pulling 
because your confidence interval, you just don't know, right? And and it's really important that you... Um, one of the things I talk about with my team a, a lot is what's the objective criteria of whatever it is we're trying to do? How do we come back to, hey, here's the frame, here's the intention that we set for what we're trying to achieve, and then that way you can make decisions based on that shared agreement. So if I was working with Chris, I would have this shared agreement that says on our more mature business, make sure I never go outside of my budget constraints within like 1%, right? Um, on a mature business, I'd be like, he might even sit here and say, Ron, 1%? Come on, man, let's get tighter. Um, but if we're talking about a more experimental business, it's like, I don't know, like maybe the the diff like the the model is 50% because we're making big bets uh or and and we've got tighter you know cycles and we're looking to fund that growth or fuel that growth so also be really conscious um you know everyone out there listening be really conscious of stepping back and saying where are we at with what we're trying to achieve here and make sure it's written down and agreed upon because i think that's the other thing that i see a lot in business is we sit there and we talk about all this stuff, but no one ever writes it down and shares it and says, here's the criteria, here's the objectives, here's where we're going to achieve it, and here are our decision criteria of whether it's successful or not. And FP&A will have all of that in a mathematical model, but that doesn't help someone like me, right? Like, right. Um, you know, I, I, I want to see it. And, and if you can frame your mathematical models with a supporting piece of documentation that says, all right, well, you know, we agreed that we'd be here. The model says that you're only, you know, you're a little lower than where it should be. That's, has it reached our, our, our decision criteria? No, not yet. Okay, great. Well, let's keep monitoring and we'll have a look at it next week, next month, however fast your decision cycles are. Definitely. Yeah. And it's not just the quantitative aspect. I think you brought up a great point, Rowan, is like, be stewards of holding the business accountable, but also like a project manager, right? Like I get back to that project manager because I wear that hat so much and I'm all about like the, if you talk to anybody on my team or anybody that I work with, they're like, Chris is always about recap. Here's what we, here's what we align to. My, one of my favorite phrases I always ask in anything that when I'm getting alignment is like, Hey, do you have any questions, comments, concerns, or clarification points? Like, that's that time to bring it up because if not, we're on this train running. Here's what we align to. Here's what we agree to. Here's what I'm going to deliver. Here's what you're going to deliver. Here's the next time we check in on it. When we check in, here's what we're going to think about. Here's what we're going to evaluate. But more than that, it's about providing the the monitoring and tracking and tooling around it, right? Like, mm -hmm. and 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 that's the piece of it that's critical because I, I I can't yeah exactly what you said. I've said in plenty of conversations and had offsites where we have all these ideas. And like nothing comes from it, like right? It's like we spent eight hours of time. Granted, it was fun, and we had all these great ideas. But what was the action cycle? Like, what was the negotiation that we had as a business together that we're gonna go out and deliver, right? And also, it's being realistic about it, because I mean, you can come out with twelve ideas, and if you we go out to these twelve things, you're not gonna get any of those right. So really, like, refine the things and say, all right, we came out. We had this eight-hour session. We came out with these 12 ideas. You know, here's the buy-in. Here's the three of them we're going to tackle. And then here's the cadence on how we're going to tackle them. Here's the support that we need inside the business. Here's how FP&A is going to hold us accountable to the three that we go towards. 
and and let's track that progress. To me, it's always like a it's a, a feedback loop. It's always a cadence, right? You identify it, you track it, you align on it, you test, you implement, you repeat. It's just constantly going through that cycle on all these different initiatives, right? So a lot of it is, and, and what we're talking about here today, Rowan, is it's not saying you have to be the best, like, Excel person and know the, the most up-to-date formulas and have the dopest, like, planful models out there, right? Like, granted, that's a skill set that you need, but that's not the home run. That's not going to knock the home run out. That's going to get you, that's going to get you on base. That'll get you to first base. But FPNA, we want to knock it out the park, man. It's all these other things that we're talking about or, or the home run victories. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, like whether you use XLOOKUP or VLOOKUP doesn't matter to most people. <laughs> um, who cares? As long as the data is accurate, you're able to deliver it rapidly and, um, and you can iterate on it quickly as things change. Um, nobody cares, uh, I think is, is something else like, sure, that's great if you're part of the Excel modeling world championships and you really care about that <laughs> stuff. And, and look, there's people out there that do that and, and kudos to you because that stuff's hard. Um, but as it pertains to the business outcome that people are seeking, it's about speed. And if, you know, you having that new skill makes you faster, fantastic. Everyone wants to support yeah. that. Um, uh, speed and accuracy and ensuring that you can deliver on what the business expects. Um, it's so much more important than, you know, whatever feature function you're using, whether that be in an application like Planful or Excel or, you know, whatever, you know, back office technology you're using. No one cares how it gets done as long as it's done quickly, accurately, in a ideally in a future scalable way as well, I would say. Um, that's, the, that's the upside of me saying it's got to scale later. Um, no one wants a Band-Aid approach that they have to fix later. <laughs> nobody. Nobody wants that, man. Nobody wants that. Maybe that's a – maybe back office transformation is a, is a topic we could cover next week, Chris, where we talk about – you know, how to prioritize, how to think about um, back office transformation as a different type of strategy, right? Like how do you enable, you talked before about, um, you know, stop throwing people at problems, think about technology. Well, let's give some some of the listeners next week uh, the ability to think about their technology stack and, and what exists out there. That'd be a fun conversation, I'm sure. Oh, for sure. I'm all about automation, RPA, AI, machine learning, that all that stuff in this application, the county finance FPNA. I love that stuff. So I think that'll be a great for, for future topic to discuss for sure. And so as we keep going down on, on strategy, is there anything that you know we haven't yet covered that you're thinking, come on, Rowan, why haven't we got here? Yeah, I think to me, the biggest one, right, like that I think is important when I think about FPNA as a growth lever and driving in a business, right? is when you think about growth, right? Growth is not just top line revenue, right? Growth is in a lot of different areas. So to me, one of the biggest aspects that uh, I have the opportunity and I think FPNA leads is, is, is definitely around the people aspect of growth, right? Um, and, and a lot of the FPNA teams I've been a part of, I love wearing a lot of different hats. Um, so sometimes I've been the, the legal person, I've been the contract person, I've been the collection person, you name it in terms of GNA, and I've kind of done that role. But 
too many times FPNA gets focused on just the business aspect of it. And at the same time, there's the people aspect of growth as well. Mm-hmm. Right. And one of the biggest initiatives that I had the opportunity to partner inside our business with was really looking at our uh, growth strategy that we have for our people, both from a voluntary, involuntary turnover perspective. Like that was a KPI that's important for us. And in SAS, like it's it's one of the very few metrics a lot of SaaS leaders talk about, right? Because you know you don't want to have a very high turnover rate in, in terms of your people and things like that. But basically, what we were a part of doing that was non-traditional to FPNA was part of shaping a strategic, like learning growth plan for our people. Like we developed a growth strategy as it relates to people. We had partners, right? Because we didn't have experts in-house around talent development, retention, and compensation, and things like that, and we didn't have the budget to go hire all those people to solve those problems that we right, had, yeah. right? but we partnered with great consultants, and the same way that we chose how the way that we go about strategic planning around our budgeting, forecasting, and scenario planning, we took the same approach to the quanti- qualitative side and most important aspect in any business of the people. And we ran that same play. And ultimately, the outcome was people understood their roles, right? They understood their roles and their performance. They had KPIs that we instilled in the business. We had variable compensation elements. We we looked at different things in terms of uh, a value proposition that we can have to future employees, right? Like we looked at our 401k match. We looked at reimbursement bonuses. We looked at training budgets that we can invest. And I think like, that piece of it is not really like talked about a lot. Like, you know, like when I, when I get to challenge and I get to talk to people and people reach out to me all the time and they're like, Chris, we want to walk you through a demo of, you know, looking at our budget planning software. I'm like, I don't even want to look at that. Walk me through if I wanted to do some workforce planning or walk me through how I can model out if we want to have, you know, these incentive bonuses and increase our 401k match. Or we want to have, you know, more uh, 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 initiatives around supporting our people in, in certain communities, right? Or we want to have an active stance in uh, JEDI, which is justice, equality, diversity, and inclusion, right? That's typically an aspect where it's like, no, nah, that's HR. Like, HR does that stuff. But to me, as an FPNA leader, that is as equally as valuable as the work that you're doing that's guiding the business. Because at the end of the day, the business are the people, right? The business is nothing else besides people passionate about what the business mission is going to be. And being part of that process was something very, very like, it was eye-opening to me because I remember getting tasked with that role. And I was like, I'm not a, I'm not an HR person. Like, I don't, <laughs> I don't like what you ask. Like, I don't know these things. Like, yeah, I can do interviews and I've done this kind of stuff, but you know, and it was, it was such like outside of bounds of my comfort zone that I was doing, but I learned so much through that. I'm like, this is a process that FPNA should be marshalling people with, and they should be involved in that. So my challenge to all the listeners is try to find those areas outside of your traditional quantitative aspect that you're doing and focus on taking those same principles, values, strategies, and approaches that we just talked about to put it around your people, put it around the qualitative side of it, and really challenge and, and grow an organization that way. I, I, I think to me, that's a that's a theme and a topic very few people discuss. 
Yeah, I, I certainly know our, uh, our head of people, Mel. Uh, she could probably be just as um, powerful in an FP&A role, right? Like uh, in, in some instances, I'm like, you're, you're HR in FP&A shoes, right? Like um, especially the way that she approaches that kind of strategic thinking about people, how do we move the business through people, and you know, as Chris said, if you're in a, if you're taking that advisor role, right, the advisor part of FPNA, I'm still, I'm stealing this, Chris, by the way. Um, borrowing is probably, yeah, it's fine. Um, so the advisor part of FPNA, like that's where you can go and advise HR on saying, all right, well, this is how we're going to work within the models that we have, and here's what would happen if we, uh, if we did X, right, or you know, what if we pulled forward um, some of the kind of scenarios. Let's say rather than compensating everyone on an annual plan, um, you know, sometimes that's hard. It's like, oh, you know, there was something in the market that changed in Q1 and therefore it ruined the whole quarter and now everyone feels disincentivized for the rest of the year because they know that they're really going to struggle to get to that annual number. Well, what if you had a 50% was an annual number because – Frankly, that's how business works, right? Uh, and then the other 50% was broken out in 12.5% splits on a quarterly basis so people feel consistently motivated. Well, that's a very fiscal thinking, but very much human, right? Human behavior, human psychology, trying to understand what motivates people. Um, and, and as Chris said, that's a part of the strategy that is really important. Like you should be heavily involved in hiring if you're looking for uh you know a new part of an organization that you're kind of spinning up it's like well who's going to lead it how much do how do we incentivize them you know what heads are we going to give them in order for them to be able to grow that business successfully um and then go and advise the other parts of the business hey marketing guess what sales is spinning up a new line of business or something like how, have you got any capacity to support that? Uh, because it doesn't look like it. You're, you're clamoring for something else. Yeah. Uh, and, and connecting the dots that sometimes us business leaders just don't see because we're not seeing the full integrated machine. For sure. Yeah, and I think what we've talked about most of what, you know, the lens of the topic, right? FP&A as a growth lever. We've discussed up until this point financial planning and analysis as a growth lever, right? What I'm saying is you also need to wear that other hat of how financial partnership and advising is a growth lever, right? There's two different mindsets to have, right? And, and both of them are depending on your stage and your business and the outcome you're looking to get. But that is where I see high potential, top of the line, uh, FP&A people, teams and companies operating is they, they know which model to flip on, right? Like if I'm talking with you, Rowan, and you're like, Chris, we're crushing our, uh, you know, marketing qualified leads, like our pipeline is crazy, our win rates are great, like everything is sunshine and roses, right? Then it's like, okay, we need to switch on the partnership and advising side. Like how do we, how do we maximize this? How do we look at ROI? How do we plan for the future? How do we put things in place, right? Or if you look at the other way and the conversation is different and it's like, Hey, Chris, we're low on our marketing qualified leads. Like we, we're not getting the ROI spin is cut because of whatever the case may be. 
okay, do I put my financial planning analysis hat on or do I put my financial partner in advising? And then even in that same conversation, you're going to be switching between the two. So my point is to listeners, to people to think about is as you're involved in business partnership, as you're looking at growth, you're making those calls within your team and yourself. That's the that's the persevere and pivot decision that you're making, right? Do I put on my quantitative, my real deep tracking monitor discipline, which is financial planning analysis? Or do I put my, how do I connect to business? How do I show empathy? How do I listen? How do I build trust? How do I be a valued partner inside of those board conversations? Those are the things. So I think to me, those are the significant growth levers that every FP&A leader needs to be thinking about. I 100% agree with you, Chris, and I think that's probably an amazing way to actually wrap this conversation because I'm not sure we can go too far uh, beyond on a, on a you know any any further than what you just summated there. You know, f- so I would encourage those listening uh, here live and and listening uh, on the podcast. Um, Go and listen to some of our previous episodes where we've talked about this as well. Uh, there was a conversation I had with Carl Seidman of Seidman Financial around using uh, FP&A as a growth level, and Carl had some amazing insights there. And uh, and go do some do some of that. You know, like go look at different strategies. Go read Blue Ocean Strategy. Go look at the you know the various Diamond Strategy, and try and step back and assess how can FP&A be part of that process and and where can we lead and where can we support and uh and where can i fit in and i think it's really important to kind of just take that moment to yourself and, and try and figure that out for sure all right chris well once again a beautiful happy friday i hope you have a great weekend enjoy the gym and uh i'll speak to you next friday thanks Ron. thanks everybody right. have a great weekend thanks everyone bye